0: Blog Talk Radio. Wide Web, this is Redeeming Truth Radio, and this is your host for the next 30 minutes as we seek to take an expedition for truth. Yours truly, Pastor Brian Chilton. Uh, last week we had an incredible testimony by Amanda Burcham, and uh, I was truly blessed having done this and I'm sure you've been blessed listening to it. It took a lot of courage and strength for her to share her testimony and the things that she went through. And uh, we also heard about the incredible power of God. And uh before we move into our our next uh interview with uh, Pastor Christopher Burcham I First of all, want to tell you about our website over at PastorBrianChilton.wordpress.com. Uh, we are reaching, by the grace of God, 188 nations for the cause of Christ. And now at the time of this uh, broadcast, uh, we will have reached one, over 100,000 people. So uh, we just want to ask you to, to help us keep this thing going. Uh, any article or podcast here on Redeeming Truth has blessed your heart. Uh, that you've just uh, maybe uh, found some great resource in, we would just ask you to share it on social media, maybe your Facebook page, tw- uh, Twitter, or whatever the case may be. We would just ask you to help us out and uh, letting other people know about these resources. Uh, We have with us Pastor Christopher Burcham. Uh, Christopher graduated from Bryan College with a bachelor's degree in biblical studies in 1990 and continued with graduate work at Huntington University. Uh, Christopher has spent the past 25 years in vocational ministry as a pastor and as a classroom teacher in Illinois, Florida, and North Carolina. And boy, I'm lucky to have gotten out of North Carolina. Well, you've gotten around. I'm still, I'm stuck. <laughs> but as of this, uh, well, actually, it would have already passed by the time we air this. Uh, Christopher is now celebrating eight years as senior pastor of Union Hill Baptist Church in Clemens, North Carolina. Uh, Christopher is also a history buff, as we're going to find out, and has the distinction of meeting the past eight presidents of the United States, from Nixon to Obama, Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about his uh, book that he's writing called Heads of State, Feet of Clay. Uh, Pastor Christopher, thank you for joining us on today's podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: First of all, uh, tell us about your salvific experience. Uh, How did you come to know about the Lord?
1: Well, my story is the polar opposite of my wife Amanda that you talked with last week. Uh, My story is so boring, really, by comparison to hers. I cannot remember a time when I did not know about the Lord. I grew up in a very solidly Christian home. Uh, my earliest memories are of God, thoughts of God, wanting to know God. I can remember at two, probably not even 3 years old, yet riding my tricycle in the driveway, having thoughts about how neat it was going to be to one day ride that on the streets of gold in heaven. Mm-hmm. I, I just always thought of God, always wanted to know him and be close to him it wasn't until I was 6 years old that I had come to a sufficient understanding of my lostness and what Christ had done and God's plan of salvation that I was able to articulate that and, and respond to that I was sitting at Calvary Baptist Church in Winston-Salem under Mark Hortz, the pastor at that time as he gave, man. gave an invitation um, and I remember vividly leaning my head on the pew in front of me, sitting next to my earthly father, meeting my heavenly father and embracing Christ as my Savior um, at 6 years old And uh, and you're right, Mark Quartz was a fantastic man, dear friend and mentor all of my life, not only came to Christ under him, but uh, at every transition point in my life as I followed the Lord into ministry, Mark was the first person I always turned to, sought his counsel, uh, really just played a tremendous role in my life. I owe him a debt I can never repay. Well, amen. You know, speaking of Pastor
0: Mark Quartz, um, I went to Fruitland Baptist Bible mm-hmm. Institute, and right. uh, Greg Mathis, uh, pastor of Mud Creek Baptist Church, he had uh, uh, Dr. Quartz there to mm-hmm. speak, and he was just very personal. Uh, that's one thing that really stood out to me about uh, right. Mark Quartz, just a very great guy, very personable individual. Well, Christopher, um, you are a history buff, uh, and um, and in addition to that, you have a passion for American politics I, I like what you said this past week you said there are two things that we shouldn't talk about or that you hear we shouldn't talk about religion and politics right. and you're involved in both and The only you, two
1: subjects I know anything at all about yeah. I either talk about them or I shut up and <laughs> my church doesn't pay me to do that well that's right yeah, the church doesn't pay it, uh, to be silent about these issues
0: I want to run through you've had a chance to meet the last 8 presidents of the United States.
1: Right. Uh first and foremost, how were you able to meet them? Well, don't ever let anyone tell you that that God doesn't care about your dreams. You know, he he gives us the specific interests that we have and he really just takes great delight in sending nice surprises our way and fulfilling goals and dreams that we never could have met otherwise. I somehow first got interested in presidents when I was about seven years old. Somebody gave me a a president's book that captured my attention and and it just sort of took off from there. Um, And I had the opportunity the first time, my first president which was Richard Nixon back in 1989. I was in college at the time. I was home for the summer. Uh, He was coming to Winston-Salem to do a fundraiser at the Benton Convention Center. I'd just come in for my summer job at Wake Forest, uh, turned on WXII and they were showing Nixon's appearance at the convention center. It didn't look like there were a ton of people there. It was a $500 plate, I think, fundraising dinner, which obviously I couldn't afford to go to that. But I turned to my parents and said, you know, if there's any chance that I can get down there and and see this man or shake his hand or something, I'm gonna try it. They thought I was crazy, but I drove on down there. And um, there were not a lot of people milling around other than those that had paid big money to be in the fundraiser. But I quickly discovered, you know, I could get to the, the ballroom where he was speaking. I could look through the little window there. I was just a few feet away from where he was giving his speech. I stood there and watched and listened to the whole thing. And we'd noticed there were half a dozen of us or so that had the same idea that were waiting, hoping to actually get to meet Mr. Nixon. And we noticed uh, an aide of his that kept coming in and out. And finally, one of the people in our group said, do you think there's any way we can meet the president? He said, oh, sure, that's no problem. Uh, for security reasons, we'll take him out a different way than he went in. But if you'll follow me, I think we can arrange this. So he took us down this this back corridor. They brought Nixon out the service entrance through the kitchen or whatever and, and uh, we came to an open elevator. He had uh, security that were standing there holding the elevator open for him and they said, Mr. President, these people would like to meet you. Can get some autographs? He said, sure uh, but let's step into the elevator where we have more light. So he took us in, in turn, one at a time. I was the last person to go in and and uh, just handed, I, had, I was taking a politics course at Wake Forest that summer and I had my textbook with me to just kill time, you know, studying and so forth. And I handed that to him with a sheet of notebook paper and said, Mr. President, will you sign this? He said, sure. Uh, he asked me what my name was, asked me how to spell it, you know, while I'm telling him what an honor it is to meet him, what a great man he is, and so forth. Um, and I remember he signed my, or after he signed my paper, he shook my hand twice, uh, still holding my pen between his thumb and forefinger. Uh, but I remember, you know, being surprised at how personable he seemed, how, you know, Nixon was sort of a brooding, dark, introverted kind of person, but he seemed to just be eating up the attention. At yeah, that time, he was about 15 years in exile, and I think was probably thrilled that anybody wanted to shake his hand, <laughs> wanted to meet him, um, but uh, that kind of, I, I had the bug from there on, was determined I was going to meet any and every president I possibly could. Uh, that That started me off, and of course, seven more <laughs> followed.
0: Well, I want to ask your uh, thoughts. I mean, obviously we're not, don't want to get you into the politics uh, or anything of that. But just looking at the person as a human being. Uh, first of all, you met Nixon. Mm-hmm. What were your impressions of Nixon as as a person?
1: Well, again, I was surprised that he seemed so warm and human and personable and not at all like his character Uh, That was a surprise. Of course, at that point, he was getting up in years, and I was, being a a very short man myself, I was surprised at how stooped he seemed and not the the tall figure I'd imagined on the news. Uh, But he he could not have been more gracious. He was uh, leaving immediately after to go back to New Jersey where his wife was waiting, so he didn't have a lot of time. uh, But he didn't seem in a hurry either, seemed very uh, eager to, to spend time with me and the others that wanted to meet him, and I was impressed by that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, you have an interesting story about
0: President Ford. Yes and uh, could you tell us a little bit about your encounter with President Ford
1: and your impressions? Yes, I I had by far the most time with President Ford that I've had of any of the the eight presidents that I've met, Um, and it all came about because, as I say, I had a summer job at Wake Forest when I was in college, uh, and the uh, man working right across the the hall from from my office was a guy by the name of Mike Ford, President Ford's oldest son. Uh, He was and is head of the Student Development Office at Wake Forest, has been for many years, um, so I, I knew him nominally at that point uh, but many years later in 2002, by that time I was living in South Florida, uh, teaching in a Christian school, uh, U.S. history and government and, and Bible at a high school level, and I'd gotten the idea that I was going to write this book about the presidents and their personal lives and quirks and exc- eccentricities and so forth. Uh, so I contacted Mike Ford. I sent him an email and told him what I was doing and said, is there any way I could possibly have a chance to meet your dad? And he said, I don't think that would be a problem at all. Uh, he had his father's office contact me there in Florida. They gave me a choice of dates, um, and I flew out to Colorado uh, to President Ford's summer home there in Beaver Creek. They gave me the security code to get in. Secret service agents met me when I got out there. Took me in the front door of the house and up to his second floor study where the president was waiting for me. And um, and he very graciously gave me a, a, a full hour of his time for a one-on-one interview. Uh, he posed for pictures. He signed his book for me, He answered every question I could think of to answer for an hour. Um, It was just really a a remarkable experience. As I shared with your church in in the revival, the one thing that struck me almost immediately about that, though, that I I have to share with people, uh, it it reminded me of what a great picture that is of the relationship that we have with God in Christ, Mm -hmm. because you see, I, I had nothing to offer President Ford. I was of absolutely no importance or use to him whatsoever. Uh, the only way I got in to see him was because I had a connection, a relationship with his son. And that was all I needed to get me right in the front door and into his home. And he welcomed me like family from that point on. You know, in the same way, uh, we have no worth or merit or importance of our own to commend us to God, uh, to ever have any right of access into his presence. But when we have a relationship with his son, that's all it takes. It opens the door wide. Uh, he welcomes us like family. We have direct and immediate access to him from that point. So I think that's a really beautiful picture. Amen. Wonderful uh, relationship. Uh, anyway, back to, to President Ford. He was uh, not quite 90 at that point. Um, I could tell as I was standing next to him posing for pictures, he was a little feeble and frail and shaky on his feet, uh, although he was still uh, swimming twice a day, several laps, and, and playing uh, at least eight holes of golf a day at that time. Um, mentally, he was sharp as a tack. You know, President Ford, unfortunately, had the reputation for being a bit of a dullard uh, Lyndon Johnson famously commented that Ford couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time and that impression had stuck. I found quite the opposite to be true. Like I say, Ford was almost ninety years old at that point. But he was very articulate, he was well versed, obviously still got national security briefings, read widely. Uh he held forth for an hour on domestic policy, foreign policy, uh economics. Uh he could recite details of his ill-fated 1976 election campaign you know very specific statistics of states he won and lost and what the margin of error was you know very much on top of things um, and still took great pride in the fact that he was the only man in history to ever beat Ronald Reagan in an electoral Mm -hmm. contest he's very proud of that fact
0: (laughs) (laughs) so you know I think there's something to be said that uh, of course politics is a vicious may as well call it sport I mean it's a vicious sport and often the humanity of a person gets lost in right. the in the political innuendo. So I think that's a good example of that. Uh, what about President Carter? You know, I, he's one that I've heard uh, has had some trouble with, I think, brain cancer. If I'm not mistaken, that's correct. Yes. And uh, a Sunday school teacher at his church in Georgia. Yes. Uh,
1: what was your What were your impressions of uh, President Carter? Well, President Carter has chosen to be the most accessible of any president in modern times, particularly through his church, as you mentioned. Uh, he's taught Sunday school uh, there at Maranatha Baptist in Plains, Georgia, probably three Sundays out of four for most of the last 30 plus years since he left the White House. And um, you know, it's a remarkable thing to be able to to sit and listen and see and hear a former president uh, teaching from the Bible, uh, praying conversationally in the name of Jesus, sharing the gospel. Um, that church really. Sees that as their mission they have it's a church of about at this point about 35 or 40 members and they'll have three or 400 people come every Sunday from all over the world Um, and uh, President Carter uh, very graciously will will pose for pictures after the service and anyone who stays through the worship service as long as they want to stand there he he does that Um, he's made himself very accessible and uh, I don't know of any other president certainly modern times who's done that As, as you say he is currently suffering from brain cancer Um, I fear that that window of opportunity is fast disappearing. Uh, So if you want to have an incredible experience, I'd encourage anyone to head to Plains, Georgia while he's still doing this. He's got a number of Sundays on his schedule between now and the end of the year, and that that opportunity's not going to be there forever. And as you say, the church is packed. Yes. Uh,
0: Even the choir loft is packed. First time I was there, I had to sit in the choir loft. Yeah. (laughs) Now, uh, next is President Reagan. Uh, how did you get a chance? To, how did you get a chance to meet President Reagan, and what were your impressions
1: of him? Well, unfortunately, I had the least amount of time or contact with President Reagan. Uh, he had just this was the year after he left office. This was in 1990. Uh, I had just moved to Illinois. I was just out of college. and packed everything I owned, lock, stock, and barrel, in my little Hyundai, and drove to Illinois where I'd never known anyone. Because the Lord was opening the door for, for ministry there. and I, I went to a little uh, tiny town uh, called Kalita. Uh, I had been there one week to the day when I saw in the newspaper that President Reagan was returning to his hometown of Dixon, which was about 10 minutes away from where I was, uh, to film a, a segment of 2020 in conjunction with the release of his memoirs that week. Uh, so it's here again, I mean, the Lord just put me in the right place at the right time, dropped this opportunity in my lap. I didn't have anything to do that day. I drove over to Dixon and camped out for a few hours at his high school, where he was coming back, the conquering hero, you know, returning home. And we had a big rally in his old high school gymnasium. Um, they they brought him in down the center aisle. I'd gone early, so staked out an aisle seat. And um, it's probably a stretch to say that I actually met him. I didn't really have any conversation with him. About all I could do was grab his hand when he went by. And I was so thrilled at the experience, I wouldn't let go, and he kept on walking, and I remember (laughs) turned around like, who's got a hold of me? Who won't let go of me? Uh, But he gave a a remarkable uh, speech. Um, I remember he was encouraging the high school students there not to to be upset if they didn't know what they were going to do in life, pointing out how many times he had changed careers over the course of his life, and Mm -hmm. all the unexpected directions his life had had taken. Uh, They presented him with a, a letter jacket from the school. He went out on the football field and threw some passes with the football team, and I mean, uh, Reagan was just so larger than life anyway, his charisma was palpable, he was just a, a wonderful man. Um, I regret that I didn't have more personal interaction with him. I came close several years later, um, I think I was already starting to to work on the book project at that time, and had talked, I was going to be out in Southern California, talked to his office about getting in to see him. They told me at the time that they'd have to, they would know to the last minute if he was going to have an opening in his schedule. I learned later that his Alzheimer's had progressed to that point. Oh, yeah. That he had good days and bad days. They never knew till the last minute whether or not he was going to be able to receive visitors. And unfortunately, when I was there, he could not, Uh, so I didn't have an opportunity for further follow up there.
0: Let's see. Now, let's uh, from Reagan, we move to George Bush Mm Senior. What were your thoughts? How did you meet him? What were your
1: thoughts? of him personally. Uh, this was in 2003, I was uh, again living and working in South Florida at the time and at that time President Bush uh, held a, uh, hosted a charity bone fishing tournament in the Florida Keys at Isle of Murata every year and uh, so I drove down there again, you know, I was camped out for a couple of days you know, hoping to see him and um, and I, he actually was coming through a lobby with his entourage and uh, I was able to, to catch his attention, I had one of his books with me that I held up, So, Mr. President will you sign this for me, which of course he was, was eager to do. Uh, First President Bush was very warm, very gracious. My, the, my most enduring impression is that he had, I think, the bluest eyes I've ever seen on an individual in my life, and I've never ever heard why that didn't come across on television or in photographs. It wasn't obvious at all, but his eyes were just piercing and arresting. And uh, so he talked to me for a few minutes, you know, signed my book. I asked him about uh, posing for pictures, and he said, sure. I, I tried to hand my camera to the guy sitting next to him, and he, uh, Mr. Bush pointed out to me that was a Secret Service agent. They weren't allowed to take pictures because they had to have both hands free at all times. So he ordered his chief of staff to come over and take some pictures of us. <laughs> very, very uh, kind.
0: And then from there, you met uh, President Clinton. And uh, what were your thoughts of him? And again, how did you get a chance to meet him?
1: Uh, yeah, well, President Clinton uh, I met on three, uh, I think three separate occasions. Once, just before he was elected president, two after he had left office. Uh, again, not to get... Particularly political, but I, I will say I, I don't have a lot of agreement with Mr. Clinton on many issues, but he has hands down the most charisma of any person I've ever encountered in my life. Uh, the first time I met him, this was three days before he was elected president in 92, uh, when I was on an airport tarmac, and when he was still probably 10 or 15 feet away, you could feel an aura, almost like a force field emanating from this man as people were just reaching out to touch him as he went past. You know, some people, the charisma is so strong that you find yourself wanting to like them in spite of yourself. Clint's charisma is so strong, you find yourself wanting him to like you. I have never had that experience with another human being.
0: Do you think that's important for a person who's running for office to have that type of charisma? I mean, it could be also Well, it's invaluable. (laughs) (laughs) I
1: mean, it also could be dangerous. And I would have to say that really all of our presidents have a certain amount of that charisma, even those where it doesn't really translate on television. Jimmy Carter, for instance, on television, he seemed about as uncharismatic as a person could. But in person, he has a sense of that that magnetism, too. I guess you have to or you don't get that far. Exactly.
0: Now, from Clinton, uh, you had a chance to meet George W. Bush. Uh, How did you meet him,
1: and what were your impressions? This was in the summer of 1999, when he had just declared his uh, candidacy for the White House. The first time I was living and working and teaching in Springfield, Illinois, at that time, and of course all the politicians came to the state capitol and made many trips there. I actually had several encounters with him. The, the best was was the first one in August of '99. Uh, I remember from where I was standing in the audience, I could see then Governor Bush before he was even introduced. You know, kind of in the wings behind him, you know, mugging uh, off stage, making faces to those in the crowd who could see him. I mean, just kind of like a frat brother or something, a big kid at heart cutting up. I mean, he did that the whole time. And even after his speech was done, he's trying on hats in the crowd and just, just goofing off and having, having a good time with everybody. <laughs> Very personable man.
0: <laughs> and then from there, you uh, met uh, the now current president, uh, Barack Obama. How did you go about meeting him? And what were your impressions of uh, of the person? Again,
1: the person. Right. <laughs> well, my, my wife and I saw that... Uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden both were coming to an election rally in Greensboro uh, a few weeks before uh, the election of of 2008, and um, you know that's when I go to those kind of events. That's where I have the advantage of being very small in stature because I can sort of work my way through people's legs and get to the front of the line uh, like a little kid. Uh, you and, know, I'm not
0: that much taller than you, so maybe I could get a little to- bit.
1: <laughs> But anyway, that's basically what I did that day. We were quite a long ways away during the the rally itself, but once it was over, I started worming my way to the front, you know, and got down to uh, Obama and Biden both as they were coming through and shaking hands. Uh, my dominant impression of Mr. Obama is that he has easily the softest and most velvety skin on his hands, at least of any man I've ever met in my life. I've just incredibly soft skin. Um, Mr. Biden, who was following along right beside him uh, he is almost like a, a hyperactive hyperkinetic puppy or something I mean he took my hand between both of his and started playing patty cake just slapping over glad go to meet you glad to, to meet you I mean just I mean, a man of boundless energy <laughs> it's incredible are you kind of surprised that he's not running this year uh, or next year, I should say. Yeah, I I had hoped that he might. I'd hope that we might have a little more competition there. And you know, Mr. Biden is a man, uh, politics aside, for whom I have great respect. I think he's he's just a, a genuinely good and decent man. And you know, for that reason, I'd hope that he might uh, give the Democrats an alternative. Uh, but I don't think anybody can begrudge him this. Certainly, uh, given all that his family's gone through and the grief of losing his son this year, and oh, absolutely. certainly wish them the very best. Absolutely.
0: Well, we have about uh looks about like 8 minutes left. Um uh, first and foremost, uh you're, you're, uh well, before we get to your book, we want to leave a few minutes uh just to talk about the book you're working on. Um uh, you mentioned this week about the importance of politics and Christianity and finding a balance between the two. Uh would you like to discuss for a few moments that balance that you shared this past week?
1: Well, I think most of us, uh, as individual Christians and churches at large, tend to make one of two mistakes. Uh, we either get overly involved in politics, where it just becomes an obsession, and you know that's all we can eat and drink and sleep and think about, and you know it just comes to dominate our lives and becomes our, our driving focus. So that's not healthy. Right. Uh, but then many of us go to the opposite extreme and just completely disengage and become totally uninvolved in politics. Perhaps just Throwing our hands up in despair at all the things we don't like, feeling hopeless that things are ever going to turn around, and and I don't think either is really appropriate for the Christian. I think uh, Jesus calls us to be engaged, to be informed, uh, responsible citizens of this kingdom, while remembering we have dual citizenship. Mm-hmm. Uh, his kingdom, where there's conflict, trumps this one. Uh, you know, it's important to keep things in perspective, but you know, I, I think He calls us to be be involved in this this world, uh, while remembering that uh, eternity should be our primary focus. Absolutely, and well said.
0: Um, and even talking about history for a few moments, uh, you know, I believe history is a very important uh, field of study mm-hmm. that often is neglected anymore. And it's an, it's unfortunate that there is almost an illiteracy of not only biblical history but also of American history. Right. Why is it important for the Christian to know
1: his or her history? Well, you know, it's a cliche to say that if we don't know history, we're doomed to repeat his mistakes. But cliches are cliches for a reason. That's right. true. Um, and, and as believers, I think it's very instructive because once you start looking uh, for for him, at least, you can see the very evident hand of God all through history. His fingerprints are all over it. It gives you a very different perspective once you can see, you know, how God's overarching plan uh, takes effect in history, how how He's worked things uh, for His his good and glory all along the way, amen. So
0: you are working on a book uh, called "Heads of State, uh, Feet of Clay." Uh, what's the book going to be about, and how far along are you in the project?
1: Well, it's probably overstated to say that I'm working on it. Uh, I'm passively working on it these days. It's something I started about a dozen years ago now. Um, and uh, you know, unfortunately, my my pastorate consumes nearly all of my time and creative energy, especially. That by the time I'm done with sermons, there's just not enough left <laughs> to get many, much serious work done on the book. A head of the state feet of clay is designed to be a, a look at the very human, personal side of the presence. You know, I learned in my years as a classroom teacher uh, that students kids students of any age, you know, they may think they're not interested in, in history. Uh, they're interested in story. We're all interested in story. You know, you can see, make their eyes glaze over with a lot of dates and, and boring facts, but when you tell their stories, mm. I've seen students' eyes come alive. Their stories are fascinating. Right. And so that's really what I want to do in the book. Uh, it, I originally intended to have a chapter per president. It's getting so long, I'm probably going to have to do at least a couple volumes. Um, I'm probably going to start with the, the modern presidents. That's where I've done most of my work, and then maybe. If, if that does well. Go back and do an earlier volume. Uh, each chapter profiling a different president, just their their human side. And most of the work I do these days, unfortunately, not a lot of writing, but I, I do a fair amount of traveling as my schedule allows. I have been all over the country to all fifty states uh, to visit several hundred uh, presidential sites now. Um, a lot of fairly obscure addresses that only most historians would know about You know, that's given me a very behind-the-scenes uh, sense of, of the men and, and their their human side. So I've done a lot of that, but I think I'm going to have to take a sabbatical <laughs> to ever finish the writing of this thing and get it done. But I haven't given up on that. Well, I know, uh, I think I mentioned to you earlier that uh, there's some
0: apologists out there like Greg Kokel. I know he says right. he'll go take a writing sabbatical right. up in northern Wisconsin. And I think uh, Robbie Zacharias... I've heard he'll go to over to England. There's an area in England, and uh, he'll just take a sabbatical and and uh, take a writing break. So uh, keep me keep us informed. Sure. I, I definitely want to know more. Any other thing that you would like to add? We've got about uh, three minutes left here. Anything you'd like to add uh, pertaining to the the importance of politics, the importance of history,
1: and how it applies to uh, the Christian life? Well. You know, I will. I've been interested in, in politics, particularly presidential politics, all my life, as well as history. I'm sure I will be till the day I die, or as long as I have mind and memory about me. But my focus has really shifted in recent years uh, because I am primarily a pastor these days. I, in some respects, talk about politics less than I ever have. I do not publicly identify as Republican or Democrat uh, because God is neither, and calls me to love and minister to both. And I know any time I publicly identify myself with one party or the other. I almost immediately lose my ability to to speak to or reach that segment. I, my my audience is of a different persuasion. Right. Uh, I am always happy to talk about politics and share my views or votes or anything else with anyone who asks me privately. That's no secret. But I really have more important things to talk about in life. Uh, you know, I want to talk about life and death and eternity and Christ and, right. you know, that's my primary uh, mission and focus. Um, my natural tendency, obviously, would be one to err on the side of getting overly involved in politics. Mm-hmm. But I've really had to take a, a back seat the last few years. Not disengaged. I'll never be disengaged. Um, but I think the thing that helps keep me sane, because I have such strong political feelings and strong interests and so forth, I just have to constantly remind myself that God is sovereign. Amen. He's on the throne. He raises leaders up. He pulls them down. Uh, the outcome of any election is exactly what God in His wisdom has determined that it should be. And at the end of the day, I have to be okay with that, because I don't know what God is doing, I don't know what purposes He has in mind. Uh, we trust him or we don't. Mm-hmm. There's no middle ground. I choose to trust Him, and you know at this point, I'm just interested in trying to figure out exactly what it is he's doing, but i I'm, I'm going to be okay with it how everything's unfold. He's God, and I'm not. Very well said, and that was perfect timing because
0: (laughs) it brought us to the end of our podcast. Again, we want to thank uh, Pastor Christopher Burcham and also his wonderful, lovely wife, Amanda, for joining us these past two weeks. Uh, This is Redeeming Truth Radio, and this is Pastor Brian Chilton reminding you that the truth shall set you free. See you back next week.
2: Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Why should Christians be involved in politics? I mean, aren't we supposed to just be about proclaiming the Gospel, Frank? Well, we are supposed to be about proclaiming the Gospel. But in order to proclaim the Gospel, you have to have political freedom and in fact when people ask me that question or make that objection I normally show them this picture now you can see this picture is a picture of the Korean Peninsula basically a homogeneous society made of Koreans the South Korean section has light it has electricity as you can see It has the gospel. It's one of the most Christianized countries in the world. North Korea, on the other hand, is a concentration camp. There's one major reason for the difference between South and North Korea and the answer is politics. The South has political freedom, the North does not. And when you think about this, politics affects virtually everything we do. In fact, politics affects our home, our school, our children, our churches, our money, our health care, the poor, the unborn. Politics even affects this particular internet that we're using right now to bring you the one minute apologist because the laws that we make in Washington the laws that we make in our state and local governments are laws that affect us all every day and politics affects our ability to preach the gospel Bobby if you don't think so or our viewers don't think so go to some of the countries I've been to Iran Saudi Arabia, China. You can't do what we're doing in this room right now in those countries. Why? Because politically they've ruled it out. They can't even see these videos in these in those countries. Why? Because politically they've ruled it out. So if you think preaching the gospel is important, and I do, then you have to think politics are important because politics affects our ability to preach the gospel.